The fear of the Lord is really a pervasive theme in the Bible from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, the fear of God is highlighted as a positive good. It's not kind of a neutral thing. It's not like, well, it's a, it is a positive good. Once I heard someone say that the fear of God is the soul of godliness, that uh, there's, there's no godliness, rather there's worldliness, where there's no fear of God. And that goes for uh, people who are overtly secular and would lay no claim to Christ, and that goes for people who profess to be Christians too, where there's no fear of God, there's no godliness, or a God-wordness, a, a living life before God, but rather worldliness, living life before the world. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at four ingredients or four elements of the fear of God, um, and it all starts with the knowledge of who God is, a true knowledge of God. Uh, without knowing God, you won't fear him. Or I, maybe, you, maybe you could fear him in a way, but not in this kind of godly way. It all starts with the fear, or excuse me, with the knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God. Without this, we will invariably have a skewed uh, perspective of God or a really small view of God. Problems will seem huge, and God will seem very, very small. Or we'll have a very domesticated view of God. There, there will be all sorts of things that God can't do and all sorts of things that can happen to us and God has no thing to do about it. We studied John chapter 2 on Thursday night this last week. And John 2 uh, shows the first miracle of Christ where he turns water into wine. And then it goes from there to Jesus, which is, you know, he's at a wedding, right, celebrating. And then he goes to the temple during the Passover and he is riled up, unhappy about what's going on. In fact, he's really angry. Money changers, things going on in the temple that he found absolutely reprehensible. And he takes, makes a whip and begins chasing the money changers and the animals out of the temple court. And I said, as we were talking about it, I said, we need to know, we need to see this picture of Jesus. Right? We're very comfortable with the Jesus who grabs little children and embraces them and reaches out and touches the leper and says, be clean and that sort of thing. And, and, and the Jesus who is raising his voice and chasing money changers out of the temple, maybe not so much. We need to know him. We need to know God. We need a, a, a true knowledge of who God is. Second, the second ingredient we looked at was we need to become more aware uh, that our lives are lived before God's face, that th this pervasive sense of God's presence. Now, every Christian, well, I think, would claim that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But the psalmist, Psalm 139, asked the question in a way that's like we're kind of backed into a corner like, whoa, okay, if this is true, this is what it means. Where can we go from God's presence? Where shall we flee from his spirit? And the answer is nowhere. Which means that all of our lives, every part of it, the things we do in secret, the thoughts of our minds, and things we do in public, it's all before the face of God. And we need to know that. We need this pervasive sense that God is present. God is here. And he sees and he knows. The third ingredient we looked at was a growing gratitude for all that God has done for us in Christ. Now, we might think, well, that's gospel, right? That's redemption. This, this ought to alleviate fear. 
but it actually doesn't. It deepens fear, a godly fear, a true fear of God. And we see this throughout the Bible. Um, I, I think I pulled out 1 Peter chapter 1, which talks about when we consider the high price God paid for us, we should live our lives in fear. Another one I just read the other day that, that draws us out, such an interesting connection that the psalmist makes. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And every person with any self-reflection says, not me. Then he says this, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. So understanding the gospel and growing in our gratitude for it actually is an ingredient for fearing God. And then the last one, the last ingredient we looked at was uh, just this, this strong sense of our duty or responsibility to God, right? The person who fears God asks the question, what does God require of me? What does he want from me? How does he expect me to live? I wonder if that's, one, if that's going on in your mind. What does God want from me? And just think in your station in life, as a dad, as a mom, as a single person, as a, as a husband, wife, as an employer, as an employee, what does God require of me? What does he want from me? It's an ingredient for the fear of the Lord. Now, um, you might say, well, what's the payoff of fearing God? Is there, is there a reward for fearing the Lord? Well, there's tons of reward for fearing God. The people who fear God are rewarded handsomely by God, richly by God. Let me give you just a, just a small sampling from Psal- the Psalms and the book of Proverbs. Psalm 34 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Psalm 103, verse 11 For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord is not, he doesn't delight in the strength of a horse or the legs of a man, but the Lord delights in those who fear him. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Proverbs 4.27, the next verse, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. I'm there, the, the, we could go on and on and on throughout the Bible and just recount all of the blessings for the man, the woman who fears God. Now, all this sounds great. It's great to know the ingredients of the fear of the Lord. It's good to be reminded and meditate on the incredible blessings of fearing God. Amen, all of that. Praise God, and we should. But I want to talk today about a peculiar temptation and problem that all of us face. And it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's this, the fear of man. The fear of men, people, okay? The fear of people. It's so insidious, it's sneaky, we can fall prey to this temptation and think that we're being holy and winsome 
and nice Christians. We can. But just as the Bible speaks of the blessings of the fear of God or fearing God, it speaks of the deadly danger of fearing man. And we ought to take this really seriously. Jesus draws this out in the Gospels. The Proverbs speak about it often. And we see just stories in the Bible of what happens when someone fears men and what men can do rather than fearing God. And it's very instructive. There may be no more descriptive place, though, than Proverbs 29. And this is probably the one that, the the verse that many of us are familiar with. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man lays a snare. In other words, the fear of man is a trap. Right? A trapper, they go out, they put their traps in places that are not so obvious, and sometimes they put bait in the trap. So an animal sticks their paw in there and gets them. The fear of man lays a snare. There's something in the snare that looks enticing. That's the bait. If I give a little here, I will be seen as smart or wise or cool or whatever. I'll fit in. That's the fear of man. The fear of not fitting in. The crave, the craving to want to be liked. Now listen, I want to be liked. We all want to be liked. But that's where That's where I fall prey to the fear of man. I want to be liked. The lust for approval, the felt need to receive praise from people. You hear people today speak often about, um, you know, being on, you know, like the good side of history, the right side of history, I think is the way it goes, or the wrong side of history. What is that? It's a billy club threatening you. Get in line. You don't want to be seen as one of those kind of people, right? I'm convinced that the most common reason for compromise and the rampant compromise we see today is the fear of man. It is without question the most common reason for compromise. I remember back, I think probably sometime in like early, or 2016, I think. It was, it was shortly after the Supreme Court decision, on, uh, a Burgerfell decision, that, uh, you know, the all-wise and powerful Supreme Court justices said, yes, gay marriage is a thing, and it shall be legal in all 50 states, you know, that whole thing. And it was shortly after that, so probably early 2016. A podcast I, I listened to with some frequency, a, an apologist named James White, He said something I've never forgotten, now eight years later. He said this, we are going to see a tsunami of apostasy. Apostasy means people leaving the faith. A tsunami, now that's a a good picture, right? That's a vivid image. A tsunami, this massive wave of apostasy. And we have. People want to fit in. They want to be seen as loving. They want to be seen as winsome. They don't want to be associated with the kind of Christianity that has sharp edges. Forgetting 
the fact that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. The problem is if the world is going to call the shots on what truth, truths need to be abandoned, truth will die in the streets. There will be no truth left. Well, except the one truth that God is love. But the problem with that is, J.I. Packer once said, I think really, really astutely said, that when a truth is put forth as the whole truth, it becomes a complete untruth. In other words, when truth is abandoned and we say God is love, that's the big truth that everyone, that's the only truth that we will accept from you Christians. We like that one. The problem with that is that that idea of love is heresy. A God who does not judge, a God who does not hate sin, a God who is, is not a good God, he's not a holy God, and he just is okay with people doing things that are going to destroy themselves. He's not loving either. And that God is actually an idol fabricated in one's own heart. We need the fear of the Lord. And I'm not just saying you, I need the fear of the Lord. I want to grow in the fear of the Lord. That's the remedy for the fear of man. So that's what Jesus addresses in Matthew 10. The broader context of of our passage we're going to look at today is Jesus is sending his disciples out and he's sending them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, to speak his truth. And he's sending them out to do good, to heal the sick and cleanse lepers and cast out demons. He's sending them out to, to speak his truth and to live in such a way that they push back darkness. And Jesus warns them and says, here's the thing, okay? You're going to experience resistance. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be uh, slandered. You're going to be maligned. Jesus doesn't mince words. In, in fact, in Matthew 10, 16, so just about 10 verses earlier from where we're going to be today, he says this, behold, I am sending you out. You know what he says? As sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, that's really helpful. What do wolves do with sheep? They, they don't like them. I mean, well, I mean they, they, they look delicious, I guess maybe. They do like them, I guess, in that way, but they want to kill them and eat them. They want to devour them. So that's what Jesus tells his disciples. And then to comfort and encourage them, he says, but don't fear them. Don't be afraid of the wolves. Instead, fear God. That's what he says. Don't be afraid of them. Instead, fear God. And I think this is maybe the most needful thing in the evil day in which we live. To fear God and not man. So here's what Jesus says. And I, this is, kind of, I think, the big idea of these eight verses we're going to look at today. Jesus says that the fear of God frees you from the fear of man and it produces in you faithfulness and endurance and boldness to speak and live for him in this world. Let me say that again. Jesus tells us that the fear of God frees you 
from the fear of man and produces in you faithfulness and endurance and boldness to speak and live for him in this world. Without the fear of God, we will almost always succumb to some form of the fear of man. And listen, it will seem reasonable. We'll be able to justify it and other people will come alongside us and help us justify it. And when we do that, we deny Christ with our words and actions. We're silent when we should say something. We're we're passive when we should act and do something. J.C. Ryle uh, wrote a great book. Um, It's a small book, too. It's a book called Thoughts for Young Men. But there's a lot in there that are thoughts for old men and thoughts for young women and thoughts for old women, too. So there's plenty in there for everyone, but, but it's especially directed to young men and some of the temptations that young men face. And he says this to young men, but I think it's very pertinent for all of us. He said, young men, I want you all to be free from this bondage of the fear of man. I want each of you to care nothing about man's opinion when the path of duty is clear. J.C. Rao just speaks straight. (laughs) He just like says this, okay, when the duty, path of duty is clear, don't give a rip about man's opinion. Now that's easier said than done. Okay, I'm like, okay, yes, I want to do that. That's his exhortation to young men. That's an exhortation to all of us. When the path of duty is clear, we should not care at all about man's opinion. And the, the remedy for that is the fear of God. The fear of God. God looms larger in our mind. His approval, living to please him, looms larger in our mind than the approval of men and living to please them. So here's what Jesus does in this passage we're going to dive into now. Jesus gives us three exhortations to not fear. Verse 26, verse 28, verse 31, he says, don't fear. But each one of these are all aimed at supporting this overarching exhortation to fear God. So he says three times, don't fear them, don't fear what they can do, don't fear. And then once he says, rather fear him, namely God. Okay, so let's look at each one of these in turn. So the first argument goes like this, don't fear man because when you're slandered or maligned for speaking truth and acting righteously, you are actually in good company. Here's what Jesus says in verse 26 and 27, and I should have included the earlier verses, but I will get to them in a minute, two verses earlier. But he says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, this might sound a little cryptic, so to decipher it, we need to go back and look at the two previous verses, verse 24 and 25, and here's what Jesus says. The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus, here's what he did, okay? He went around doing good. 
He spoke good news, right? It was called the good news of the kingdom. He, uh, he would heal the sick. He would cast out demons. He would cleanse lepers. He raised the dead. He, he, he blessed children. He did all these things that were, that were great, good. And what did the religious establishment call him? Beelzebul, the prince of demons, in fact, it was actually in that, the immediate context of Jesus casting out a demon. They say, ah, he's Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He casts out demons by the power of Satan. Imagine the spiritual blindness there. I mean, it's breathtaking. I mean, it is absolutely breathtaking to think of the spiritual blindness of these religious Jewish men whose scriptures pointed to the Messiah, he's standing before them, and they call him demon-possessed. But then Jesus says, okay, this is how they treated me. How much more will they malign you? How much more will they slander you? How much more will they speak evil about you? In other words, there should be an expectation that we as Christians will, to some degree, be maligned or mistreated if we're faithful to Christ. Now listen, I don't mean being mistreated or being maligned. Maybe it wouldn't be mistreatment, I suppose. But I'm not talking about people speaking evil because we're doing evil. Because we're being jerks. Right? Christians should never make the news because they're publicly intoxicated, right? stumbling around through town, or because of some scandalous sexual misconduct, or because they're seen brawling with their neighbor, yelling and screaming at their neighbor. We, we shouldn't be known for that. We shouldn't do that, for sure. But if you and I follow the master and follow in his footsteps, Jesus said, we'll be slandered, we'll be maligned, will be spoken of as evil. If you speak the truth straight up, no matter how loving you say it, some will hear it as hate and malign you. No matter how lovingly you say it. But this is where Jesus says, have no fear of them. That's what verse 26 says, have no fear of them. One of the evidences that you and I are following in the footsteps of the Lord is when we speak, and I think what's, what's in view here is when we speak in public, and I don't mean just like with a crowd, but when we say out loud what's true. One of the evidences that we're following in his footsteps is when we say in public what he's given us in private and are slandered for it. Or when we live righteously truly righteously, and are hated for it. And here's where I think um, the fear of man comes to play here. The truth is not to be held privately in our hearts or in our minds merely. It's meant to be published publicly. And I think that's why Jesus says, what you receive in secret, say out in the open, in the light, what you receive in darkness, I think I got those mixed around, but what you receive in darkness Proclaim on the housetops. When we do that, 
as Christ's ambassadors, there will be times we're maligned for it. And when that happens, we ought to count it a privilege to be so treated as our master was treated. In other words, you're in good company when that happens. I think that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? If this is how they treated me, how much worse will they treat you? What he says to us in the dark is to be spoken in the light. What he reveals in secret is to be proclaimed on the housetops. And I don't think Jesus is talking about getting secret messages for Jesus from him that no one, has, no one has ever heard before. I think he's just talking about what he reveals to us. We have revelation here. We're to say in the open. We're to speak in the open. Our master was slandered and mistreated and called a blasphemer for speaking the truth. And so what does Jesus do? He gives us his truth and he tells us to speak it in the open. And since a servant is not, should not expect to be treated better than his master, then we should expect to receive pushback or resistance or, you know, at different times. And I, I don't, I'm not saying we should have a martyr complex and every time, right, we, now we can speak things wrongly, we can, we can be jerks, all of that stuff but we should expect faithfulness to Christ to lead to resistance from the world. In in part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes, Jesus says the following, and this is, I think it's the the last of the Beatitudes, so this is where Jesus says, blessed are those who, the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom and so forth. The last one says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I think it's saying something very similar. When you're slandered, when people utter evil against you, because you're living right and speaking what's true, they're doing it on his account. Remember when... Paul shows up to Peter. I'm sorry. Jesus shows up to Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul falls off his horse or donkey because it's blinding light. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Persecution of The believers Saul was persecuting was persecution of Christ. When people malign you because you just say something basic and true that God made them male and female in a world gone mad, it's because they're maligning Christ ultimately. And when this happens, we should recognize that we're in good company because this is how they treated Jesus. This is how they treated the prophets before. Again, we should not have a martyr complex. It's important that if people say things against you, that the things they're saying are actually false. When they say you're anti this or anti that or you're a hateful person or anything like that, those things should actually be false. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that if you say certain things, if you speak in a way that's faithful to Christ and his truth, some of those things will actually be said. 
you know, it's interesting. The, the early Christians in the Roman Empire, as they were you know, spread out throughout, throughout the Roman Empire, I mean, these early Christians that suffered persecution under like Nero and Domitian and Caligula, these other emperors, these ruthless men, they often were brought in on charges of atheism. They're called atheists. Because they wouldn't worship the whole pantheon of Roman gods. They worshiped Christ. They said, no, Jesus alone is Lord. And so they were called atheists and they were executed for being troublers. <laughs> Those who were causing trouble. They were, they were accused of being in incestuous relationships because the, the, the fellowship of the saints was so tight and precious that, that they called each other brothers and sisters and they lived in such a way that was very unusual. They were vilified. Christ himself was vilified. How much more will his people be? So this first argument is Jesus is saying, fear God and not man, because when you are spoken of as evil or in an evil way for speaking the truth and living what's right, you're following in the footsteps of the prophets, actually, and in the footsteps of Christ himself. Here's argument number two. Now, you're going to like this. Don't fear man because the worst they can do is kill you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. Verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Luke puts it this way. Don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can't do anything more to you. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. Don't fear man because all evil men can do is kill your body. This may not seem super helpful on the surface, <laughs> okay? Um, but sometimes it is good to know what's the worst that can happen and then just kind of put that in perspective. I need that help. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, listen, it's no big deal. Dying's no big deal. Just go out and, you know, just try to get killed. That's not what he's saying. Um, but he says there's a, there's a bigger concern. There's, there's something bigger to consider. And I thought of this. And, and ladies, I know you're not the only ones that are, you know, maybe have a fear of mice or whatever. But imagine you, you have a house infested with mice. You got like five rascally mice running around your house. And you're just thinking, I just want to get out of the house. Like, I just want to go, I got to get out of this house. But you know that there are hungry grizzly bears surrounding your house. And the moment you step outside the door, you're going to be lunch for one of them. All of a sudden, that bigger fear puts what's, what you're dealing with in your home in perspective. I'm not comparing God to a grizzly bear who wants to eat you, okay? It, the, right? Every metaphor, every an analogy falls apart at some point, okay? I'm not saying that. But, but it does put our fear of man in perspective. That's what Jesus is doing here. He wants us to replace the fear of what people may do to us. They might you know, make fun or ostracize or kind of push to the margins of, you know, our neighborhood or whatever, or, or the worst, kill us. 
And he wants to replace those fears or the fear of man with the fear of what God can do to us. Destroy both body and soul in hell. Being rejected, being ostracized, being cast away by men is nothing compared to being rejected or cast away by God. Would you agree with that? If your life is about pleasing the Lord above all other things, the worst that can happen is temporary loss in this world. Loss of reputation or job, perhaps, property, even life. But even then, and we need to recognize this, even then, it's not ultimately loss. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1. And this is where he's deliberating kind of out loud whether he's going to live or die. And, and he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Later in the book of Philippians, he says, I count everything as loss. Everything. My, my, my accolades, my former education and training and everything I've accomplished in life, I count it all as loss. And I count it all as dung compared to knowing Christ. So if you live in the fear of the Lord, you may lose out in this life in some way, no doubt. You might lose out on being friends with certain people. Or, but at the end of the day, it's not loss at all. On the other hand, if you live your life fundamentally before others, for their praise and approval, or in the fear of man, the loss is eternal. Now you might say, is it that bad? I mean, is it really that bad? I'm not, no, listen, I'm not saying that today you, like you struggle with the fear of man in an instance and all of a sudden you're going to hell. I don't mean that. But someone who fundamentally lives for the praise and approval of others, the loss is eternal. It is eternal. Here's what Jesus says. He connects the, the, the desire to be praised by others, the fear of man with unbelief. In John 5.44, he poses it in a question. Now listen to this. I read this some years back, and I don't, you know, it's one of those times where the, the Holy Spirit just, like a verse I'd read other times, highlights a verse like, whoa, God, help me not do this. I come back to it often. Lord, I don't want to do this. He says this, how can you believe when you receive glory from, other, from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How can you believe when you're seeking praise from others and not the praise that comes from God? I think the answer is you can't. Wanting the approval and glory and praise from man, it strangles faith. It I mean, the two, can't, the two can't coexist. And I would suggest that verses 32 and 33 of our passage really show us what's at stake. So remember the context. Jesus is sending his disciples out with his message to do his work. Okay, you're going to proclaim the, my truth and you're going to do my work and, and all of that. Okay, that's what, that's what they were called to do. And I'm not saying there wasn't a special calling of those first 
disciples in that setting. No doubt there was, but you and I are called to the same thing. We are given his truth, and we're called to do his work, and we have a work to do. As individuals, as families, as a church family, we have work to do. And um, what's going to govern our lives, right? The lust to be liked and viewed a particular way by the world or a consuming desire to please God. It's going to be one or the other. And the stakes couldn't be higher. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 32 and 33. So whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The word acknowledge here, some translations, I think the New American Standard says confess. I actually kind of like that better. I think that just helps us understand this is, it's not just a private acknowledgement, but it's living for Christ in a way that is obvious. It's speaking for Christ in a way that it's not just privately held beliefs. It's something we say, we've been entrusted with. Whoever confesses me, Jesus says, I will confess before my Father, but whoever denies me, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The world is fine with uh, privately held beliefs. They just would like you to keep it to yourself. Well, certain things anyways. It's when you and I say with our lips and show with our life that Jesus is Lord. It's when our mouth and our life bear witness to the fear of God. That's when, um, at times, there will be trouble. But the question is, what do you want? Do you want to be acknowledged in a certain way by the world? Remember where Jesus says, uh, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is saying, you know, in the context of like fasting and stuff like that, praying, when you fast, don't blow a trumpet and say, I'm fasting, look at me, you know, sort of thing. Or he actually doesn't, that's, that's prayer. Don't stand on the corner and say, I'm, you know, Ta-da, listen to my prayer. Um, or when you fast, make sure to shave and you know, present yourself so people don't know. His point is, now it's not, it's not like it's bad if you, you pray around other people. We should do that. Or if people know you're, you're fasting, great. But we don't just announce it because that's your reward. The praise of people. Wow, look at how spiritual he is. And man, he prays like a... Navy SEAL, my goodness, that guy's awesome, or gal. What do you want? The praise and approval of the world or the praise and approval of God? So fear God and not man. Because though you may lose temporary reward in this world, you're going to gain eternally in Christ. There's a limit to what men can do to you. Here's argument number three. And I love this. I find this so deeply comforting and fear-producing in a certain way. Here's argument three. Don't fear men 
Because God is in every detail of life. Verse 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. I think this brings everything together. I mean, Jesus draws out two seemingly insignificant things. Sparrows. Right? A sparrow that falls to the ground. No one here is aware of it. Unless it happens in your backyard or something. But no one here is aware of that, right? A sparrow that falls to the ground, the number of hairs on your head. Like, who cares about that? Apparently God does. Because they're numbered. I mean, stuff that doesn't seem to matter to us. A sparrow falling to the ground doesn't happen apart from your father. And here's, why does Jesus say this here? Because the implications for you and I are enormous. If the moment of death for a little bird in some remote forest is of concern to God and determined by him, it doesn't happen apart from him, how much more your life, your days, how much more does God watch over your life with utmost care and wisdom? The point is, he does. Nothing in the whole universe ultimately is random. Not a single thing. The number of hairs on your head, now I see one bald person here, that's easy, okay. Uh, but the number of hairs on your head are numbered by God. Oh, there's a couple, all right. Um, or a bird falling to the ground is overseen by God. And you're more valuable than many sparrows. Nothing is random ultimately. Now, I understand. We use the word random in a different way, in a, a different way that I'm not saying. We should be, you know, like word Nazis or whatever. That's not true, you know, whatever. But, right, pollsters, they take random samples, all that stuff, whatever. But I'm saying, in God's providence, nothing's random. Your life and the details of your life are in God's hands. Nothing escapes his notice. And this is supposed to give you the right kind of fear of God. Right? This is to help, help, uh, help us understand, right? Remember the four ingredients? This gives us a knowledge of who he is. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's wise. He's the governor of the universe. This is, should give us a pervasive sense of his presence, right? If, he, if not a bird falls to the ground apart from him, he's there. He knows. He sees. He's, right? And he's with us. It ought to help produce or deepen a gratitude for his redeeming work in Christ. Who is it? It's not just God, the judge of the earth. It is God, your father, who, is a, who's, who has adopted you into his family. 
and says, you're mine. And it ought to give us a sense of responsibility. What is our duty to God? We're to speak and live faithfully for Christ and just, just entrust ourselves completely to our faithful creator and God and Father. So if you're maligned, if you're slandered, even if you die, even if you die at the hands of another, what is this saying? It, it won't happen apart from your father. And all of this, I think, is meant to produce the right kind of fear. Fear that sets us free from other fears. A guy named Henry Martin was a missionary to Turkey as a young man, early 1800s. I think he died in like 1812 as a 32-year-old or something. He did a great work for God in an unknown land among a people who were almost completely ignorant of the gospel. He understood, he understood this truth. He understood this truth. And he knew that God was in the details of all of his life. He understood that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father and was confident that he, as a child of God, was more valuable than many sparrows. And he has this great saying. It used to be on my phone. On the, anyways, it doesn't matter. But I love this. This is so powerful. He, he said this. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. I mean, that is just, that's like epic. He lived that way. It wasn't just a saying. Lord, help me. I want to live that way more and more and not just quote what someone else said. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. You are more valuable than many sparrows. God is in the details. God is in all the details of life. So don't fear men. What can happen? Don't fear the future. Don't fear the outcome of this election or don't fear you know, what the Supreme Court might do or what our local magistrate might do. Don't fear any of that. Don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Rather, fear God. The one who holds the world in his hands. I remember reading somebody once say, uh, say that, kind of that idea of God holding the world in his hands, but, but it was kind of like, but God doesn't get down to the details. He just, he just ensures that the big picture is gonna happen in the end. And I just, I look at this, I'm like, Jesus, I think it's down to the details. Like the number of hairs on your head and a sparrow falling to the ground. So don't fear. Don't fear man. The fear of man is a, lays a snare. Fear God. Passage that I think brings a lot of clarity for me is Isaiah 8, 12, and 13 that says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in, tre- nor be in dread but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So don't fear man, don't fear them, and don't fear what they fear. Don't fear men, and don't fear what rebellious men fear. 
rather fear God. All right?